I got a liter of tea in my pot here. Hell so. yeah. Oh yeah. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Chris. It's uh, Happy New Year. 2022, yeah. which I guess we're living in the future. Yeah. <laughs> so we're coming up on the two-year anniversary of this of this podcast. Oh uh, yeah, that's saying. true. And by by association, the two-year anniversary of of COVID shutdowns. Pure coincidence, actually. So <laughs> <laughs> not related at all. Yeah, it's not like we suddenly found ourselves with a lot of extra time <laughs> approximately two years ago. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. What are you excited for this year, Shooter? Well, uh, I'm excited to just find my legs in, in Indianapolis. Yeah. You know, it seems, it seems like we moved here in, at the end of July, and I'm still just now feeling that I'm, like, settled in. I told you I bought a Baroque flute, so I'm excited for that. Yep. I love it, love it. Dreams do come true. Yeah, Santa does exist. And uh, (laughs) the Baroque flute was uh, bought to you by a check cut to me by the uh, ICO. So whoever the the financial manager over there, that's Santa. That's that's (laughs) real life. (laughs) Santa works in HR in Indianapolis. Uh, What about you? Dude, I mean, I'm still waiting on my new digital piano, uh, my upright digital piano. But, dude, the global piano shortage is, like, <laughs> why does there have to be a shortage with this, too? Like, it's, like, fine, I'll wait longer for my smartphone, my computers, and the, you know, all that fine. But not only is there the chip shortage, right, so that applies to digital pianos, but also just the piano shortage in general. Everyone wants pianos. Yeah. Which is good, you know, for the world, but not good for me. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's crazy. That's still going on. I, I wonder if we'll get, get our instruments at the same time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that would be. That's that'll... a sign of the stars aligning right there. Yeah, but no, that's that's mm. really exciting. Um, I look forward to your cocktail piano hours on the new setup. Yeah. Oh, I mean, do you mind if we plug that real quick? You yeah, know? yeah. Yeah. If anyone's not aware, for weirdly also starting around the same time as this podcast, <laughs> like <laughs> April 2020, when we all had some more free time on our hands. Uh, yeah, pretty much. I try to do it every week, usually every Friday. Um, back in the early days of the pa- of the pandemic, I guess like the pre-vaccine phase of the pandemic. I was pretty much on the money. Like every Friday, I uploaded a cocktail piano video of me playing like a classic or a cool jazz version of something. Or again, like, yeah, any of the jazz standards by, you know, uh, Duke Ellington or um, Johnny Mercer or Hoagie Carmichael. Um, it was kind of like a fun way to like pass the, pass the time during, during COVID lockdown. And because uh, I couldn't perform in public anymore, which was so sad for all the musicians like us. You know, it was a, cool thing for me to do so on instagram and i try to upload it to youtube as well but instagram i'm pretty religious about end of every week i upload a cocktail piano video for a little cocktail piano session so feel free to press play pour yourself a drink put your feet up relax unwind after the end of the week ease into the weekend you know it's not good to start anything very abruptly so ease into the weekend with a martini yeah now we're talking i always enjoy them for what it's worth so so, thank you, thank yeah. you. Yeah, and it's actually I've been able to like brush up and like really improve upon a lot of my jazz piano playing, like my jazz theory knowledge. Like I have this big notebook, like staff paper, I've been taking just like relearning jazz theory from like the very beginning, like from the modes, learning um, progressions, uh, like altered dominant chord, like you know, just start starting at the very beginning, working my way up to you know all the intermediate and sometimes you know advanced stuff like. Elidian sharp two dominant mode, you know, for the relative minor, right? So all, all that, all that sort of stuff. And anyway, yeah, I've been keeping like a big notebook to just like keep track of everything. And I'm probably going to publish it at some point on my website Ooh. for free, just for anyone that's curious. <laughs> that would be really so. cool. 
Maybe I'll try to kick off this segment. I think that's probably for the best. Okay. <laughs> okay, so introducing a new segment here. We are going to do something called underrated, overrated, or properly rated. <laughs> <laughs> and so Streeter and I, we basically pre-selected. We haven't like shared our things with each other, our, our lists with each other, but we've each selected a few things. Just to start off easy, we're going to keep it not only rated PG, but... <laughs> PG-13, uh, let's be real. Okay. <laughs> um, not rated. <laughs> the unrated is on our Patreon, actually. <laughs> um, so I'm going to kick it off. So my first one is the Cleveland Orchestra. <laughs> All right. I'm going to go overrated on this. <laughs> really? Okay. Yeah. I said properly rated. Yeah. Okay. How, how are they rated? Yeah, so the way I think of the Cleveland Orchestra is, so they're not my favorite orchestra in the world, they're not my favorite orchestra in the United States, but they're a very solid, good orchestra. And I think that's how most people view them, mm -hmm. in our circles at least. Maybe I'm wrong. But the thing I, there's a few things I kind of like and respect about the Cleveland Orchestra. <laughs> it's just kind of charming that there's, I mean, they're probably the most European-sounding American orchestra. Is that fair? They're European sounding, but I don't know if they're the most, but they're, they're certainly up there. I'm curious who you would think, I'm just like genuinely curious who you think was more European than them. To me, it's, it's my favorite American orchestra, which is the San Francisco Symphony. Ah, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I just feel like, especially when the Cleveland Orchestra plays German repertoire and mm. stuff, they just really do have that like Eastern European, Germanic even sound to their brass and their strings and just that really kind of warm and dark, like not... Not like the New York Philharmonic, which is, you know, pizzazz and poppy and bright and, and pops concerts and all that stuff, where True. the Cleveland Orchestra would, would feel like so out of place playing like that. They almost feel like a, a very large chamber orchestra in the way hmm. they play and sound. And I've even heard that from players I've played with them. So, again, it's all kind of subjective. But I also kind of like how they're, yeah, a European-sounding orchestra stuck in, like, the Rust Belt. <laughs> I think that's, yeah, there's something kind of charming about that. And... Like an old-world European orchestra, too. Like They sound like a European yeah. orchestra did in the 60s. Right, right. We're not talking, you know, yeah, the, the London Philharmonic nowadays sort of yeah. thing, right? This is, and, of course, like a lot of their famous recordings were with the conductor George Snell. Um, that was his name, Americanized. He's actually, hung, he was Hungarian, had like a long, or a bit longer. Um, it was like Yorgi, and then hmm. I forget the rest of his last name. But So they, they do have like some Eastern European roots, which is kind of cool, and... And yeah, and also I kind of think it's a little charming, the towns or cities in this country, that they have a great orchestra, and that's kind of it. Like, Boston's sort of in that category as well. Like, there is a Boston Ballet, which is very good, but to be frank, it's not quite in the caliber of San Francisco Ballet, the American Ballet Company, and the New York City Ballet. And I'm sure Boston has an opera. I just can't really name anything about it, though, which is kind of case in point. But yeah, everyone just adores the symphony there. Yeah. And that's it's kind not, of it's the not case. like New York City, which is exploding right. with chamber groups and small ballets and yeah, operas and, and just, all, you know yeah. pop up orchestras. It's just it's an exploding scene. But Cleveland is really not. It's just a wonderful orchestra there. Yeah, and even like their orchestra hall, it's like in the middle of a park. It's like not like a city block, like how it is in Chicago, for example. Mm. The, the orchestra hall there. So, so yeah, it's it's there's um yeah there's a lot of things I like about. It. And again, I you know I don't think they're overrated or underrated. I just think they're. <laughs> properly rated um yeah i'm curious your thoughts though i talked for a bit <laughs> no it's all good yeah i i, I guess it, 
I don't know how exactly how they how they're rated, but in in my eyes, they're often seen as the top tier orchestra in the country. And I think, I think that, part of that, if uh, sorry, if yeah, I, yeah, I can yeah. stop you real, right there, uh, right there, real quick. I think part of that, we went to school in the Midwest in Indiana, and there's a lot of people from Ohio that were uh, at our school, and so so maybe my, to my them perspective like, is distorted. It's like God's gift to the universe was the Cleveland Orchestra. Yeah, <laughs> and to be fair, if you're living in Cleveland, that's kind of true. <laughs> Not LeBron James. <laughs> well, I guess so. Yeah. I, I mean, I think like they're probably the most in tune orchestra in the country. That's for sure. <laughs> maybe, maybe maybe in the world, like they they are really ridiculously in tune. Yeah. But I, I don't know why. Like, just something about them. Like they they they're an orchestra that I can't fault in any way. But I just don't go to their recordings. The same way that I do That's for fair. for like New York or San Francisco, um, or even some, sometimes Boston for for various repertoire. Like yeah. I, they have a, a really interesting sound, but I'm not sure what they're what they do that they do better than anyone else. I will. Um, they're like I an all rounder. Yeah. If if I, I can point you somewhere, and mm. again, I I think you're on something there. I don't find myself saying, oh, yeah, go really check out that Cleveland Orchestra recording of of Mall or two or something, right? Mm. But at the same time, if it's on PBS, a performance of theirs, I'll watch it and be like, yeah, this is, this is great. Yeah, you know? exactly. But I will point, I think, I want to, I don't think I'm mixing this up. Uh, I think they're, they did a Bruckner cycle that was actually really refined and really good because a lot of people, or a lot of orchestras, I think, get Bruckner wrong. And it's easy to get wrong because... It's so bombastic. He, yeah, it's so bombastic. It's so easy to be so cliched with it and approach it like Star Wars or something. And there's actually a lot of, you know, to all the brass players... There's more to Bruckner's symphonies than the fourth movement. <laughs> There's actually some, like, <laughs> not nice, yeah. not, not, other than, like, the huge, loud, fortissimo endings and stuff. There's actually some great music in there. And I want to say they went and recorded it in in southern Germany at the concert hall he, like, worked wow. at as an organist. Because, like, all the rests, right, were, like, they put in the symphonies were enough time for, like, the reverberation echo to yeah. die down. So they, they did, like, a really interesting, like, scholarly, also just well-played recording of I, the Bruckner symphonies, I want to say. And I think those are really cool. Wonderful. So. I'll, I will definitely check that out. That sounds, I mean, yeah. just the fact that they went to, to the hall that Bruckner worked at to, to record the symphonies, is that makes me sold on the, on the cycle. Because it's emblematic of the kind of attitude that they're taking, that they want to actually get this thing right. Yeah. yeah, they're so European. They record in Europe. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's great to to hear. Um, I will say with, yeah. with with Bruckner, he has a, a piece that's not so well known, a string quintet, which doesn't sound oh really, which doesn't, yeah, that that doesn't sound like he doesn't would sound like. Bruckner. Yeah, <laughs> but it's it's very charming, and I think it's it's beautifully written, and it's my favorite piece of his. And I think it's one of those things where if you approach the symphonies as if they were actually chamber music like this the string quintet more will be gotten than if you approach it as uh as like this sort of bombastic the way yeah, that, the, yeah. the way that brass players often uh, approach Bruckner symphonies but cool cool yeah. well there we have it that's that's cleveland What you got for me, man? 
<laughs> okay, well, let's let's start with um, the seats behind the orchestra in a concert hall. Is that overrated or underrated or properly rated? So you're you're talking the seats behind like so staring into the eyes of the conductor. Yes. Essentially. Yeah. Right. So because some concert halls have those, some don't. Yeah. Um, I'll say they are underrated. Ah. Okay. Yeah, if I could... Yeah, I actually do have a strong opinion on this. Okay, I don't think you okay. can actually call it a symphony hall if it doesn't have those. Okay. Yeah. Or else it's just like a converted opera house. <laughs> right? Okay. It's just like a stage. I could also do a stage production. right? And I guess there's nothing wrong with that, but don't call it a symphony hall, right? Where, um, see some examples. Like Boston Symphony Hall, which I do love as a concert hall. They don't have seats behind the stage. Same with Avery Fisher Hall, where the New York Philharmonic plays. I think in the renovation that's happening right now, which is why they're playing all these like all these weird venues across <laughs> New York. <laughs> yeah. um, They're doing a pop yeah, show like, in Hyde Park. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. In the Bronx. <laughs> um, <laughs> like some, some random park in Brooklyn. Hey, Tony, hey. Yeah. They're doing subway um, shows. <laughs> yeah, and like ideally they'd want to just perform in like Carnegie Hall, right? Where the New York Phil used to perform like pretty regularly in the Bernstein era, but Carnegie Hall is like booked. They have like their own <laughs> concert series and stuff. With yeah. stuff. So yeah, they play in all these like cathedrals and other random halls. But anyways, um, yeah, so, but no, I'm pretty sure they're adding them in uh, behind it. They're doing like a very big renovation of that, of that concert hall. But no, like San Francisco has them. Uh, Walt Disney Hall in LA has them. Pretty sure the... Philadelphia Symphony Hall. I'm pretty sure it's called the Verizon Center. It sounds like a basketball <laughs> oh arena. God. Yeah, that's, I think we're gonna see. We're gonna start seeing more of that. So get ready. <laughs> the Sleep Train Mattress Center. <laughs> um, yeah, like the Onion, Onion had that article saying like, like uh, it'll always be the Taco Bell Arena to locals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so. Or else, I don't know, it just feels like like Cleveland's Hall, uh, I think Severance Hall's mm-hmm. name of the orchestra hall. Yeah, they don't have seats behind it. And again, I feel like you could also do like a stage production on that for yeah. obvious reasons. Yeah. I think most American halls don't have seats behind. It's a very European thing. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. So, no, okay, yeah, that's my take. I think yeah. very underrated. They should be required that that underrated. <laughs> yeah. How about you? I am of two minds on this. I think. Well, you have to pick one for the for, yeah. for the set. Well, segment, I'm gonna but. go. I'm gonna go down the middle and say properly rated because mm-hmm. because of, because my two minds okay. are both overrated and underrated, which is okay. that uh, I love the seats as an audience member, and I hate them when I'm playing because <laughs> I don't. It seems like there's someone like looking over. I mean, there literally is someone looking over your shoulder, yeah. but I don't like that right. feeling. Uh, I just played a concert at the at the Palladium that has seats in the back, yeah. and um, I don't I don't I don't like it. Uh, and you don't even sit in the back row, right? I sit, don't sit in the back row. Where they can actually read the music. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, in a hall where there's seats behind you, there's <laughs> um, there's yeah. some people who can sort of see what goes on behind the scenes. And I, I kind of like that as an audience member. And it's really useful if you're a student, I think. Yeah, because um, Because you, you really, you can see the conductor. You can kind of yeah. get it. You almost feel like you're in the orchestra and you can get a feel for how things work behind the scenes. But um, as, a, as an orchestra member, it seems it seems a little bit like someone is sort of checking your work or watching you a little bit and maybe that as with experience it'll feel less weird but for right now i'm kind of i'm like hey man yeah. like can we can i get some can i get some space i should have erased all those dick drawings i'm like i've been doing when i pretend i'm marking my part I'm just, yeah 
Yeah, so I, w- I do think that too, because uh, San Francisco, yeah, we have those. And I think it's very, um, yeah, it's good for like, again, like engaging the community in the classical music, because I think what San Francisco does, or they at least did this pre-pandemic, again, I don't know about now, but uh, how it worked was it was those behind the orchestra seats were only, they only, you, you could only buy them the, the day of the concert. Mm. And you actually had to go to the box office, and it was open seating back there too. So it was just you know they had enough you know obviously yeah. not going to sell more tickets than they have room, but it's like you so you want to get there when the hall opens if you got this ticket, and they're like twenty bucks or something too. They're pretty cheap. Yeah, but, yeah. So I, I think that's, that's a, a good cool way to do, way to do it, it yeah. actually. Yeah, yeah, um, and that that opens it up for students too. You know exactly exactly by being, by being cheap and kind of first come first serve. Yeah, you know, you yeah and pro- professionals too that work downtown and you know they walk by there on the lunch break and just check if they have any open tickets for tonight yeah they might, may not even know the concert but for 20 bucks each you know it's it's great yeah symphony number five ah all right i am gonna go overrated just because it's a great piece of music but it is very very highly rated interesting if, if that makes I, sense. i'm gonna go underrated damn yeah <laughs> yeah all right hit me okay and maybe this is me coming as a trumpet player, but yeah, most say, brass players don't look past the first, the, the opening, <laughs> opening 30 measures of that yeah. piece, really. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, it's, it's a marvelous piece of music, like from beginning to end, like the second movement, that's a, was a Daggiato? No, it, I think it's the fourth, a, I think it's the fourth movement. Okay. Yeah. Wait, did I say that tempo right? Am I? I think it's the Adagiato. Adagiato? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's gorgeous it's so wonderful and all the way to like the very like the last coda of like the fourth or the final movement and stuff like it's such a wonderful beautiful piece of music and it's more than just a famous trumpet solo at the very beginning and so maybe i was approaching this from my circle but i think also i I must say i just think also in the classical music community everyone says it's great or not everyone a lot of people say it's great but they can't articulate why it's great other than everyone agrees it's great and so because of that, I feel like, no, like, dude, go to a performance of it. Like, listen to it all the way through. It's, it's miraculous. I, it's, it's so fantastic. Yeah. It's a wonderful piece. Part of the reason I said underrated is, is just that. Like, a lot of people just... Oh, overrated, you said? Sorry, or, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, 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 the reason I said overrated is just that, that a lot of people just, because it's so famous, the opening, I think, they, they just say it's mm-hmm. great, but they don't really know it or understand it or, you know, haven't listened to... Yeah. much of it right i mean there's so many interesting facets of, of it like the is, is the third movement the the um the corner obligato solo the i believe so i believe yeah. so yeah um yeah. that's basically a horn concerto um yeah you know with, within a symphony
it's a wonderful piece of music, but um, for me, it's a mid-tier Mahler symphony. Interesting. Okay. I think nine, the first movement of ten. That maybe that doesn't count, but you know, two, mm. and I like four a lot. Mm. Um, I like one more than five. I, I think like th- there's a tier above five. Interesting. With the asterisk that all of Mahler's symphonies are pretty much. Yeah. So everything he wrote is yeah <laughs> it's pretty, yeah he wrote so little but everything that he wrote is pretty much the, you know it's in the top tier of music generally so yeah, so yeah. we're really splitting hairs here right Mahler symphonies yeah there's so many layers to a Mahler symphony it's not melody and accompaniment yeah <laughs> uh but yeah but five also yeah Mahler symphony five the trumpet solo like trumpet players we also just get very zeroed in on the solo itself and just trying to play it perfectly because it's on the first round of every audition you'll ever play there's a reason it's on all um audition requirements because it's you should you need to be able to play that because it's just solo trumpet right without the orchestra for the opening what 30 seconds or 45 seconds or so it's just you it's just you everyone else hasn't even lifted up their instruments yet and it's and it's kind of interesting too. Some director, uh, some some conductors really like to conduct that in time and have a vision for how it should go. Some just let you do it. Yeah, you know? it's very so. much like uh, the opening solo to Prelude to the Afternoon of the Fawn. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. In the flute world, yeah, it's it's that for the trumpet world. So, and it's, um, it's not the, it's not like very challenging, but it's not the easiest thing either. I mean, it goes fairly high. It has to be pretty precise and yeah. So, but even like that solo itself is like so good because, you know, the rhythm, the rhythm and the melody in there, if I'm called a melody is, you know, a building block, a building block for that whole movement and stuff. So even trumpet players like forget like why that, why Mahler wrote that, you know, and stuff. And Again, there's so many layers to um, to Mahler Five that I think most people don't tap into just because we're so used to it. And and I don't know. And again, it's also just part of personal taste. But yeah, I just love the music all all the way through. And yeah, yeah. it may not be in your top Mahler cut, but like it's a one. I've always kind of said like five and seven are, are like my two favorite Mahler symphonies. So. Interesting. I go two and nine. Two and nine. Two. I yeah. see. I mean, ten is actually my favorite, but I wish it were finished. Yeah, 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 right, right. <laughs> but, but the open to ten is the first movement of ten is just serene. It just like he just was. He was like on another planet, I think. And he was. It seemed like I don't know how old he was, but it seemed like he died in his prime. Sadly, I think that's a lot of composers, really. Yeah. You know? Yeah, you just keep improving when you get older, right? It just you just get more refined in your craft. And that first movement, the adagio from Mahler Ten, so ahead of its time. It was just it's just yeah. beautiful. It films if feels like a brilliant like film score from 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 the 60s or 70s it's just it's it's so gorgeous and great yeah it feels like it's interesting that you say that because it's i've actually thought of uh, several times that that it's weird that it's not used in more movies 
Yeah, it, yeah. It is very cinematic. It is, yeah. Oh, so. it's so great. Yeah, it, it feels like it's from like a Hitchcock film in a way. Yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah. yeah. All right, standing ovations. Standing ovations, yeah, dude, very overrated. <laughs> All right, we're in agreement for the first time. It would mean something if it didn't happen at every concert, but it happens at, at every concert. <laughs> yeah, it would also mean something if people weren't pressured into doing it. You know, there's yeah. so, so many times that I've seen a standing ovation happen, mostly because 10 loud people started doing it and everyone else kind of looks around. And then yes. shrugs and says, I guess I'll stand up as well because... It's like a big ripple. Yeah. yeah. So, come on. What, what, what are we doing here? I never stand. I never stand at standing ovations. No, I, I'm usually a bit of a rebel, too. I'm like, nope, nope. I'm, I'm yeah. good here. I'm... I think one time I did clap or in stand <laughs> was yeah. when I saw in San, in San Francisco with Michael Tilson Thomas and Yefim Bronfman playing the Gershwin Piano Concerto. Dude. Ooh, that would have been a great concert. That was marvel. That was exquisite in the truest sense. That was just something else. They're a good team. Yeah, no, also, this goes back to the ITL DNA, like applause, right? Yeah. <laughs> it should, should be banned applause. But have you watched that series on Netflix? I can't remember if I've recommended it to you. Um, that series on Netflix, Pretend It's a City with Fran Leibowitz and Martin Scorsese. Oh, you, you did recommend it. I keep forgetting to watch that. I should, uh, yeah. You guys would love it. It's hilarious. She's brilliant but yeah uh, I, I really like her i haven't i haven't seen this thing but i, I know of her otherwise and she's hilarious and and she's great su super brilliant yeah she's so brilliant yeah so great um i forget if it was in this or in other series she did or no it was an interview she did talking about her and jerry robbins because her mm -hmm. and jerry robbins were good friends and she went to the ballet like all the time and still does again i don't know about covid but she was she always like uh was a frequenter at the new york city ballet and she says yeah it's weird like she, because she, she, she was asked, like, how's the ballet now compared to where it was in the 70s and 80s? And she says, okay, it's probably a little bit worse now. But she says that's not, that's not, like, controversial. Like, anybody would agree. Like, the, the New York City ballet throughout the 70s and 80s with Brishnikov and stuff. That's, like, yeah. the finest ballet that's probably ever been danced and maybe ever will be danced. <laughs> <Yeah>. just, <laughs> um, she says what's really gone down is the quality of the audience. <laughs> Because she says, yeah, like, you went to the ballet, you, know, you went to Giselle in, in you know, a performance in the 80s, people would, would be talking in the lobby, right? Like, oh, I mean, Brishnikov, he must be sick. Like, he, he must have a cold. You know, this, he's not doing it right. But he's, she says now, like, every, you, you walk on, when they walk on stage, it's like a standing ovation for that, and then this and that. And she goes, because you know what they're really applauding? themselves that's that's what's really going on here that's hell yeah fran that's it that's exactly so, it they're, yeah, they're applauding so. themselves for for going to the concert for being cultured whatever it is yeah yeah, yeah. They're sitting through the whole damn thing without taking out their phones even though they've taken out their phones a million times so yeah that's how i feel about standing ovations it's you know people applauding themselves for for pretending to be 
culture. Yeah. Waste of time. What I do during stand, like if I if, if a standing ovation is happening, I just leave because then I can, I, <laughs> yeah. because then I can you know, Perfect. I, can, I can beat the, beat the crowd. So, welcome to another installment of Impolite to Listen at the Movies. <laughs> so, we've done this before a bit, and I'm actually very excited for this, because this is a movie I've been wanting Streeter to see for a very long time, and I'll just say it is one of my favorite movies, at least like in the past 10 years, like this modern film era we're in. It's, I, I own it. I've watched it many, many, many times, as a matter of fact. Yeah. Just the fair warning that we are going to have spoilers so we'll put up the spoiler alarm right now but this should probably be obvious <laughs> so feel free to pause right here go watch the movie and come back it work out fine but yeah. this is your podcast player on your phone you can do whatever you want anyway the movie we watched and can't wait to talk about is whiplash directed by damien chazelle and it came out i think in 2013 is that right 2013 or 14 Something like that yeah this is movie two that i've always I've, I'm often asked about after I've been to, or after I'm talking to someone and they realize I've been to music school, sometimes mm. I'll ask, oh, have you seen Whiplash? And just to like recap it, it's the story of a jazz, uh, jazz drummer student at a fictional music conservatory in New York, but probably based off of either Manhattan School of Music or Juilliard. It's or Juilliard. They've even, it's, it's, I mean, unless I'm mistaken, they've shot some of it in Juilliard. Oh, like, okay. And yeah, it's the relationship, the troubled relationship between his professor and and him and and all the consequences that can that, that can produce and i loved it i'm curious what this off the bat you watched it last night right so yep. it's fresh yep okay watched it last night um yeah i i'm going to give it i'm trying to think of what's what's like an effective rating system overrated underrated yeah, <laughs> or properly yeah. rated. well i don't know how it's rated actually um, like did the movie do well when it when it came out like did it did it get like oscar nominations did it did fairly like well it got nominated for best picture and oh. demon chazelle got nominated for best director and jk simmons won the oscar for best supporting actor was that um the, teacher? the teacher okay yeah yeah cool, so cool. he won the oscar for that and it I, might have gotten the best oscar for like sound design or something or sound editing or one of those and mm-hmm. I'm not sure if this is still true or if it even was true, but it's like one of, if not the, like lowest budget films to get nominated for Best Picture or something like that. I believe it. I thought that was cool. And this is also the movie that put Damien Chazelle on the map. It was like his first like real film, and then he went on to direct La La Land and uh, you know a few other oh, things like okay, First yeah, Man yeah. and stuff. Yeah. So, but this was like his his pet project he had like ever since college. He always wanted to make this sort of movie and sort of thing. And that makes sense things. for a couple of points that I was going to make. So yeah. I'm gonna give it. I'm gonna go the rating system that Roger Ebert uses on his yeah. used on his blog, which is out of four stars, not five. Yes. And I'm yes. going to give it three stars out of four. Okay. Okay. So that's that's like a that's like big thumbs up. That's so yeah. that's like good movie, not necessarily like all time classic. Gotcha. Yep. But cool. I, I really enjoyed it. I think it is probably one of the best movies that I've seen about about music. Sure. Okay. Yeah. I would just love to hear your your high level take on on, yeah. the, on the film. So I'm going to start with things that I loved about it. Yeah. One it's, is it's that it's it felt like a movie that was made by someone who actually knew about music. 
most people make movies about topics and it seems like the people who are actually involved in the topic have no relation to the movie like they they like watch it and they say like yeah this is nothing this i don't recognize myself in this mirror right so like mm-hmm. scientists will often say that about movies like interstellar right they'll, yeah. they'll look at that like this has, this has nothing Gravity. to do with how yeah yeah this has nothing to do with anything that you know we're actually up to and we say that about music movies often most of the yeah. times we watch movies right. that that feature music especially classical music and we're like yeah this person has spent next to no time actually talking to classical musicians, which yeah. didn't get that feeling at all with, yeah, with this movie. Okay. So do you know anything about like the preparation or his yeah. background or anything? So basically, Damien Chazelle, he, him and the guy who did the music for this, Justin Hurwitz, they've been the composer, director, collaborator on all their projects, including La La Land and other things. Uh, yeah, they were roommates together at Harvard and... I don't think either of them studied music formally, but they were they were in a band together. <laughs> and Damien Chazelle was a percussionist and stuff, and he, he played like jazz percussion and things. And yeah, he's all about music. <laughs> that makes sense. So th- they're small things. I-, I wish I wrote down all the examples, but so near the beginning, there's a moment where the teacher, like the professor Fletcher, walks in on the student Neiman, who's practicing, and he's practicing mm-hmm. something crazy. And um, and the, the the professor says. He says, show me your rudiments. Mm-hmm. So he wants to see what he can actually do with a double time swing, right? Yeah. That becomes like a sort of a riff throughout the movie. And I think that's right. like a, that's a nice touch because that's what musicians want, right? Yeah. If you, like, if I can tell most things about someone's entire musicianship by the way they play a C major scale, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's why whenever I hear of a new, new musician, someone says, hey, I, I heard this violinist. She's really cool. Go check her out what I always do is try to find a recording of her playing Bach or Mozart, mm. right? Mm. Because those are like the closest thing to the, to the rudiments. And then I, that's something that I, I think a, a lesser movie would, you know, it's, it's tempting to think that when you're auditioning someone or when you're trying to get a sense of someone's musicianship, you should hear them play like the most difficult thing that they can play. Yeah. But it's, it's the other way around, right? The way, yeah, that, the way yeah. that a musician handles simplicity is, is, the, is the gist of their musicianship. So the fact that that movie got that right sold me on it right off the bat, right? Because that happens yeah. in like the first 10 minutes or so. I was like, okay. It's the first scene. Actually. Oh, it's the first scene. Okay, yeah. It's the opening scene. Yeah. yeah. I forgot that you've seen this yeah. movie a ton. So, Yeah. Um, yeah. But, and if I, I could just like pause on that point yeah. real quick. I actually, it's one of my favorite, not I have a lot of points I like about the movie, but I do love that opening scene because if you remember, the way the whole film starts is just the title whiplash and black right and the drum roll going up from like a single stroke to yeah. a drum roll and i just love how it really catches your attention and it's has there's something very militaristic on that snare drum right that's kind of foreshadowing the the confrontation that's the whole gist of the film hmm. and i always feel a lot of movies really waste their opening thing the opening shot the opening moment and it's like you haven't lost the audience yet right this is your chance and a lot of movies really do screw that up i think it's an afterthought yeah but and then that scene right where fletcher stumbles upon um neiman when he stumbles upon him just practicing in a practice room and that scene lasts maybe like a minute and a half or so and it's kind of like a little like back and forth they have that's kind of that's kind of like the whole movie in that one little small scene Mm. Right. That's kind of like that's like the thesis that is now extrapolated across the rest of the film, which yeah, I just think that's good filmmaking, actually. You know, yeah, it's and, very argumentative in that way. It's yeah. like it's like a good opening gambit. It's like a piece of music, right? It's like yeah. a like a yeah, fugue, yeah, like, like a fugue by Bach or Beethoven Five, right? Mm-hmm. It has an opening thesis that contains the rest of the work within it, 
Exactly. And exactly. That's, yeah. that's, that's very musical. And it's yeah. also just good filmmaking because it shows yeah. that there's actually attention being paid to the, to the entirety of the work, not just the, the sort of arc of it, right? Right, right. Instead of just, you know, the pan over of Chicago with yeah. upbeat transition music going with general stock footage. <laughs> right, right, right. Just yeah. to set the scene of the city. Yeah. Yeah, that's F terrible. That, yeah. Other touches that showed that he understands musicians is that I often think that if an alien species were observing us and they didn't know anything about music per se, I often think that musicians might often seem closer to drug addicts than we might think. <laughs> if someone were observing us who didn't know that music is not actually harmful the same way that cocaine or heroin is. Um, they might look at the, you know, like someone who's, you know, using heroin addictively uh, the same way that, that a musician is. And I think this movie captures that, right? Like he looks, uh, the student Neiman look, often looks unwell. He does things like he's, he's obsessive about practicing, obviously. He's also pushing people away from his life for the sake of music, which is classic sort of drug addict behavior. There's a scene where he, he basically tells his not quite girlfriend yet but he's dating someone and he basically pushes her away because um she's going to get in the way of his greatness and his like work the, a lot of the imagery also kind of reminded me of um requiem for a dream mm. that, that one yeah. movie and that's that's a movie about drugs and um this this was a movie about music but it seemed seemed similar you know they joke that music is a drug and something and i always think of figure skating as the parallel where it's like the moby dick like depressing obsession with getting it right with like mm. being the best you know it's really striving for the top and not accepting anything less it can just like destroy you, you know? yeah maybe this is a good time to go into something i didn't like about it okay sorry so to go along with the obsession thing they, they portrayed mm -hmm. neiman in this in this way where he's he's working really hard and it looks like he's working really hard and he's often he's sweating he's he's like bleeding out like his 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 hand starts to bleed yeah. from how hard he's drumming you know there's that's also like a riff that they go off of several times like there's blood yeah. on the drum set etc but i think that's there's something fundamentally flipped in that which is which is what I, I think that the the greatest musicians barely look like they're playing it's actually bad form to to play in such a way that you bleed and someone who is trying to be as good as he is and is actually as good as he is wouldn't really be playing like that right like most most great musicians are effortless when you watch like louis armstrong play yeah right it's he's you've said this before but like he sings like he plays and he plays like he sings but the transition from singing to playing his trumpet is barely anything like he it just yeah. it looks like it's literally an extension of his breathing which it is right so i don't know what you think about that i thought that was yeah I think that kind of falls into the what makes it a movie category. You know, it's like it, it is a movie and maybe also it's part of the character because he's trying so hard and it's clear he's, he's he's very good, but he hasn't reached what he knows he can do. But also, of course, what Fletcher, the professor, knows he can yeah. do, which is why he's pushing him so hard and sort of thing. So, yeah, no, I, I get your point, though. Yeah, it's. Yeah, that's, but I would, I would almost argue that just like reinforces the flaw in the character. That's that's a good point. I didn't interpret it that way, but I think actually now that you said that, that's probably maybe that's right. I, I was thinking of it as a flaw because I was thinking if he's that good, he wouldn't be playing that way. But maybe the movie's actually saying you know he's really not that good. That's why yeah. he's that's why he is bleeding out when he's playing. Yeah, if I could say too, it's like when I saw people even complain on like like YouTube reviews or like on the blogs about how. When he was saying, you know, like uh, all the times where he's even saying like he's clapping, he's like that's no, no, that's not quite my tempo. 
that's not my tempo. Nope, just rushing. No, you're, you're dragging. You know, or when he says, "Oh, there's someone out of tune," right? And of course, he goes on to like you know terrify all all the students in the room as he's trying to find the one player who's out of tune, right? And some of the musicians like in the interwebs would even pause and say, "Like, no, it's perfectly in tune. Like, this film is inaccurate." To which I would say, to which Damien Chazelle even said, "You're missing the point, right? If someone is." Is, Flet- is Fletcher's ear that good? That is, his ear is even better than yours, right? Or is he just playing mind games? Yeah. Right? That, that's left up to the viewer, ultimately. But I think in that case, it's pretty clear that the film... I don't think the film is leaving that up to the viewer. I think it's pretty clear that Fletcher is playing mind games. That chord was in tune. I don't think his ear is better than ours. It's also like the, that first rehearsal that when the scene happens where he terrifies everyone um, and kicks out someone from the band because of yeah. an out-of-tune chord. The person that he kicks out is, you know, he, he was like, oh, actually, he wasn't even out-of-tune. It was the other guy, but he just didn't know. So yeah. that's, that's bad enough. I think this is all kind of a, a show to, to impress mm-hmm. Neiman or yeah. play mind games with Neiman. The character of Fletcher is an interesting one because, so I tweeted out last night, like late last night after I watched it, that we were going to talk about it. And I got a few few responses. And someone pointed out, and there, there, there are two responses that I want to make a note of, but someone pointed out that he seems more like an athletics coach than he does a music teacher. Which like had, a football coach or yeah, something? So, yeah. yeah okay. Which I think is a good point because, so there's something, there's something in Whiplash that's like very real, that's very true. Like it, it hits yeah. on, it hits on a dynamic of student-teacher relationships in, in music that is, yeah. at its core, very, very true. And I, yeah. don't, I don't want to discount that. Yeah. At the same time, one of the things I said is that, is that great teachers have this quality where being in a room with them and playing for them is more terrifying than any, any concert hall, right? Any, sure. You can be playing Carnegie Hall with all the agents in the world attending your recital, and it's not as scary as playing for a really great teacher because yeah. they just have that. They, there's something in the energy that it's hmm. hard to put into words, but it both terrifies you and makes you sort of transcend yourself, right? Exactly. I think yeah. I think you have moments in classes with these great teachers where you you can't really play like that in public because it's not it's not for public consumption, right? Mm-hmm. It's like it's this dialogue that's a a back and forth with a teacher. It's a it's it's a crazy relationship. So yeah, so when people ask me, like, is music school actually like that? I would say the specifics are exaggerated in the film, right? Like throwing, at least nowadays, like 50 years ago, I don't know, actually. Yeah, yeah, I think. <laughs> um, but at least nowadays, uh, yeah, with administration, you know, actually keeping an eye on faculty and also kind of this confrontational style of teaching has gotten a bit out of style in like the past 20 years, maybe. Uh, where back in the days, it was very you know, old school, very confrontational in teaching. You weren't friends with your teacher ever, so, yeah. sort of deal. They weren't your mentor. But, exactly, exactly, yeah. exactly. It's a hip term nowadays. The specifics of the film are exaggerated, are exaggerated, but that mentality still exists in music school and probably always will, I think. And yeah, where you're almost like at war with your teacher. And again, like I saw this at... in departments where we where we went to music school and such where the teacher would intentionally he, he knew in the studio who in like who who hated each other like who couldn't stand each other and he would be sure in orchestra placements uh in, in this in the seating of the orchestra that they sat next to each other which you would think wow such a dick you know an asshole and probably right but he would have a reason he would say no because when you work 
in the real world, you're going to have to work with people you can't stand. Yeah. And it's an important skill to be able to have. So I was like, all right, I can't argue with that too much, actually. So yeah, that's the thing I kind of love. Like, Fletcher was so, like, abusive mentally and sometimes even physically to, like, the students. But he never didn't have a reason for it. He And, and of course, like, that's the thing with the film. Like, he mentally abuses, you know, uh, Andrew Neiman, the, the, the kid. But then at the end, that, like epic drum solo he's able to play to finish off the movie you could very well make the case if it weren't for that abusive violent relationship he would never have been able to play that right and bring down the house you know so yeah. so it's like uh, it's not a comfortable narrative right but it's it's there and yeah. the film doesn't shy away from that and it asks you the viewer to kind of come with your own con- come come up with your own conclusion which i kind of respect and it's one of those movies where this is in my book at least this is one of the marks for a great movie the more you think about the movie, the more it rewards you for thinking about it. And I think Whiplash kind of falls into that because there's so many, even in like specific scenes, there's so many things you could really read into and think about and try to figure out and such. A great example is when, do you remember the scene where the folder goes missing for the other drummer? And there's like a good few video essays on YouTube of of people trying to figure out who took the folder, right? And it's never addressed in the film. But many, many people come to the conclusion that Fletcher took it. I was going to say that, right. that, was, that was my guess but as I was watching the movie. Yeah, I mean, because you think, oh, did it just get lost? Did Neiman actually lose it intentionally so he'd have a chance to sit in and play drums because he had just all the charts memorized and the other drummer doesn't, right? Even though the other drummer was supposed to play all these all, all the charts for the jazz competition. But I think there's like uh, like Damien Chazelle, who wrote the script too, he he put in like a little small hint saying like the other the other drummer said to Fletcher, like, you know this, I can't play that well from, from memory. He like says that in some other scene. It's like a slight hint that yeah. Fletcher wanted That's actually where where I thought it was it was Fletcher taking it because he said, You know that I can't play from memory or something like that. Like, yeah. It's I have some problem playing with memory. When I saw that when I heard that my interpretation was that Fletcher knows that knows that that's subpar and mm-hmm. is basically is he's basically trying to audition for a drummer that can play from memory yeah so he's just taking an opportunity to like take the folder and then and then basically say you know the other person needs to play now and if if he also said I can't play from memory then maybe they, then maybe he would be out but the and that theory is probably down the drain at that point, right? Yeah. But it's like, because Fletcher wouldn't ruin his own jazz. Com- He's the last person to ruin his own jazz competition. <laughs> right, right. You know, stakes. Uh, but yeah, but, and then, um, and also like putting Neiman on the spot and he says, well, you better, you better fucking hope your memory doesn't fail you now, right? When he says, yeah. I can play everything from memory. Mm-hmm. And it's like the, the micro moments like that. And almost like with great comedy, like if you look at the great comedy films of like the silent film era and also just like, uh, who who was the animator that did all like the Looney Tunes stuff? I don't know actually. I, I forget. But brilliant like comedy animating and, and stuff. But so often the funniest thing is the thing that happens off camera, like when Bugs Bunny like runs off the screen, you hear the sound and he flies back. Right. That's so it's the things that you don't ex- explicitly see that really just add to the material of, of the film. I think it's cool. And I thought this movie does a lot of that. Like there's a whole world, whole world you're kind of brought into and or, like. You're like an, an uncomfortable witness in this war, <laughs> this like micro war uh, thing that I think is just really cool. And just again, like really good filmmaking. Yeah. So, I mean, we can get back to the film, but what do you actually think about 
the thesis of the film like I, it sounds like you are kind of on board with it because I, you said you said that you can make a case that he wouldn't have been able to play the that drum solo that he did without the the sort of abusive teacher and all that stuff so like what what do you actually think in this in this debate about um i guess teaching methods is that is that the yeah the catch-all guess, term like what's your take on yeah it? well for the record when i teach i don't embrace <laughs> such methods <laughs> you know what it's one of those it's probably an unpopular opinion but I again the you know there's legal issues here too. You can, there's some things that are you is against like code of conduct from a legal standpoint at any sure. any university right so forget all that but like this actual mentality I do think there is a place for it man where it's like where it's clear that Fletcher recognized that Andrew was also I thought it was kind of cool I realized this when I watched it like the second or third time but he he doesn't call him Andrew until the very last scene when mm-hmm. when they're on stage. It's like, Andrew, what are you doing, right? When he's, like, it's the first time he, like, respects him, like, as a peer. It's, like, mm, at the very... That's a nice end. touch. Yeah, because yeah, he calls him by his last name, Neiman, throughout the whole thing. And and um, there is, I, I weirdly do think there is a place for, because I imagine, again, like, figure skating, they still embrace this sort of mentality, I'm sure, in that, and in ballet, ballet too, school yeah, as yeah. well. Yeah, exactly. And I think, because it's almost a compliment that Fletcher chose to go after Andrew, right? Because he recognized this kid had the talent. He he had what it took, and Fletcher wanted. He said, in his own opinion, the only way this kid would actually though reach reach the pinnacle of his abilities is if I put him in my crosshairs, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah, you know, I I do kind of wonder, like, would we have you know the Yuhidi Menowins and the you know because they all came from this system or Heifetz, right, and stuff. It's you have to wonder, would, and that's the point Fletcher makes. Like, you know, imagine if you know, he always goes back to that story story with Charlie Parker and getting the simple thrown at his head when he screws up in the rehearsal. Says, so, you know, after that, he goes home and he practices, you know, but, and he practices his tail off for years until he goes on stage and at, at the Reno and plays the best solo the world's ever heard. Hmm. He said, but imagine if that recording session, he screwed up and, and, you know, the other guy's like, oh, it's fine. Good job, right? No, Charlie Parker right that's hard to argue with that's hard to argue with so it's again i can't it's hard to come down like fully in support of of the thesis but there's certainly a point there that that is not indisputable but sort of like the results are proof there's two things here it's it is tough to argue with but i'm going to try so one thing is okay so this is a this is like a stretch so stick with me on this analogy but say if you want to be like the best soccer player the key is not to be the best soccer player for any given game, but to be the best soccer player for the succession of games that is your entire career, right? Mm-hmm. And to do that, you, you do need to be, to some degree, nice. And people want, should want to work with you or play with right. you, right? So th- there's, something, there's something there that I think the sort of Fletcher method misses, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. You want to teach people not just to be the best that they can be, but the best colleagues that they can be. Neiman would never be able to really have a proper career yeah. if, because he's too, he's going to burn out. He's going to be scarred when, you know, when he, he's not going to be someone that people want to play with necessarily. Same with Fletcher. Like I can't imagine yeah. Fletcher having colleagues that want to play with him Yeah, because of the way that he is kind of psychopathic. So it's all, and, and that kind of leads to my second thing, which is that, it's all about scale. And I understand that the movie has to exaggerate things for dramatic effect because yeah. it would, 
obviously, like a, a movie about real life would be boring because look how bored we are in our real lives. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's, that's why we go to the movies. But <laughs> <laughs> so, like, obviously, that's like a huge caveat. But you have to kind of be able to tap into that psychopathic mindset at certain times. But you have to know where to cap it. Don't practice all day because you're going to hurt yourself. And if you hurt yourself, you're not going to be able to have a career. Right. Yeah, so that's that's that. kind of the thing. Like you don't want to be the best player for this game. You want to be the best player for all the games. So like don't right. like the next concert is just the next concert. But you hopefully will have a, a long career of many concerts. So mm-hmm. if you practice 16 hours a day for this next concert and that goes really well, but then you end up with focal dystonia, that's yeah. you've you yeah. failed. Right. So there's something there that the movie doesn't it just didn't sit quite right with me because I, I can't actually imagine a teacher going that far because yeah. at that point he's being counter to his own interests, right? Yeah. But you, again, I almost come back to, you know, Fletcher, even though we, I mean, he's flawed as well, right? He has that Moby Dick, like depressing obsession with having a great student mm. where he always, he's always telling stories or the story he told about the trumpet player he had that died or something and, or committed suicide. I forget. I think committed suicide I, I, is the implication. Yeah. I think, I think it's, yeah, it's not explicitly said, but it's kind of, but yeah, so he's he's almost on his quest for his own Charlie Parker. You know, that's kind of like admirable. That's why he's a teacher. He actually wants you know, a great student. He, he loves students, right? He, I mean, he wants to teach the next great generation or the next great group of players. But and he, he hasn't been able to have that. But yeah, but I think the reason why is because, again, they kind of allude to that guy committing suicide because of Fletcher's teaching methods. So again, it kind of goes with the flaw of, of Fletcher. He's hugely flawed. Like maybe even he has a tragic flaw, right? In, in the yeah. sense of a Greek tragedy. Like it's very possible that the reason that he will never have a Charlie Parker is because he is psychopathically obsessed. He's, he's monomaniacal about having a Charlie yeah. Parker. Like perhaps, right. you, you know, you need to know at whom to throw that symbol. Yeah. yeah. At when and when to stop, right? right With right. Charlie Parker, it wasn't a, a preconceived thing. That just happened in his life and it worked out. But yeah. now he's trying to like he now he's trying to like strike magic right with that right. formula, and that's very likely why he's never going to end up with a great student because he just breaks all of them, and and yeah. that's that's a tragic flaw that's built into the DNA of his of his mentality right, and I think the movie wants you wants you to think that it's not saying look at this great teacher I think it's saying like look at him he's trying to do this thing just like Neiman is trying to be the best drummer, Fletcher is trying to be the best teacher, and they're both going at it in this way that is that is obviously flawed because it's not working for either of them right <laughs> right like Newman right isn't charlie parker and fletcher isn't the guy who threw the symbol at him so <laughs> yeah no it's funny i mean one of the things i really do like about the movie too is um wait sorry can i go turn the light on it got really dark yeah sure yeah, I feel yeah yeah like i'm it's an yeah. fbi investigation here no you don't <laughs> <laughs> we have to distort your voice yes we use napalm on the village in nicaragua <laughs> <laughs> i was there <laughs> anyway yeah sorry, yeah you were saying yeah, no, I do like how, like, there's very few wasted moments in the movie. I just like all the micro things that are, like, a glimpse into the mind of Fletcher, right? Like, when he tells Neiman, like, he made the band and rehearsals at, like, 6 a.m., and he gets there, he's, like, rushing to, to get there in time, and no one's there, and he's sitting there for two hours, and rehearsal didn't start till 8. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, all the mind games that are going on throughout this whole, whole thing. And I think that's what's interesting, too. Like, the physical abuse is, like, the obvious thing. But the mental abuse is the is the deeper and like the more real thing in music 
schools and curriculum and stuff. Also, uh, let, I mean, if we could just talk about like the movie movie, I just thought like the music was phenomenal. Like a yeah. lot of the original music written for it was so good. The way like so many of the scenes of the performances were shot and filmed was were fantastic. Um, J.K. Simmons, who plays Fletcher, he has a master's, I think, in orchestral conducting. Oh. oh. So, yeah, he was kind of, like, made to, like, play this thing. <laughs> um, yeah. And his dad was, like, a college band director or something, too. Like, he was, yeah, so he was, like, the perfect person to play this. And uh, there's so many scenes I just loved. I just thought were so interesting. Like, I love the scene where he, it's after Fletcher gets fired. And he's walking and hears him playing at that little, like, uh, jazz club. You see Fletcher like playing the p- piano, like his little intimate jazz setting, and that's one of the things. Where, that's like the first time you see him outside of the walls of the conservatory, right? It's, it's like, oh wow, this guy like, m- maybe there are more layers to him after all, right? Like, it, wow, yeah. and, and they sit and have a drink, and it's almost like I'm not. I don't know if you can relate to this, but maybe you can. But it's like, when you've worked at like a company, and you and say your former like boss's boss. You both don't work there anymore. You both moved on or something, but you had worked there for a while and you like reported up into that hierarchy to them. But then you go grab a beer with them. It feels like weird for the first 10 minutes because that's something you would have never done. Like, yeah. at the, I mean, maybe you would have, I don't know. It always depends. But now it's like the hierarchy's gone, right? It's just you, there's two people now having a drink and you're talking about where you work. I mean, the you talk about stories about the, all the times, you know, that you're mad at each other or something and, it's weird, yeah. and it's sort of like a moment like that where now it's just two jazz fans talking and stuff. Yeah, yeah. So I thought that was that's such like a really cool scene, and dude, I thought that was some... the best scene. Yeah, and dude, so many like hilarious moments in the movie too. Like so many of the insults and stuff. Yeah, the insults <laughs> when he are says, great. when he says, "Yeah," and any Starbucks jazz album proves my point. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> what are you fucking Sanjay Gupta? Get on stage yeah. and play the kit. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> and of course, we have to talk about the ending scene, the climax of the whole film, where he gets on stage and realizes that Fletcher set him up, and he doesn't have the sheet music to the song they're about to play yeah and it's on stage in front of like all the jazz critics and all this stuff and it's one of those where it's like if that has never happened to you you haven't played enough gigs yeah like like, there's always been you always have a story like the time where you got there you didn't have the music it wasn't there There there's a problem with something this or that or you lost it or something yeah you grabbed the wrong music by mistake Yeah, yeah that's definitely always happened to everyone but I, re- I remember like watching this whole movie in the theater and it's like such a thrill ride of a movie to like yeah. watch in a dark theater. It was, it's crazy. And then, and then of course that final scene where he comes out and he kicks off the Duke Ellington chart caravan and like takes over control of the band. And yeah. And, yeah. and the whole band just lays it down like incredibly. And yeah, there's just so many 
small thing. And again, like the way the movie's like cut, the way way it's it's filmed from a light perspective, it's just so interesting and cool. Any movie can do it, but, but most choose not to. So it's something too. Again, this seems like a silly thing to say, but I think it's really important. It's a movie that knows when to start and when to end. <laughs> Yeah. Like it ended perfectly, I think. That's like the perfect ending. And there's so many movies, and we already talked about how it started, but it's like the perfect ending. Like anything beyond that would have almost been a disappointment. Like it, almost like how other Beatles knew when to quit. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? And that, that, that's so rare. That's so rare. Yeah. It seemed like an indie movie in that sense. I was going to say that at the top of this program. This program. But, um, <laughs> Brought to you by. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I was gonna say when you when you mentioned that this was his first movie, did you say it was his first movie? His first like feature length. For, first feature, like, yeah, yeah, and and also the fact that it was like one of the low lowest budget films to be nominated for best picture. It seemed like an indie movie, and, and I mean that in the best possible way. Like yeah. it seemed, it seemed like there was someone with a vision who also wrote it and directed it. Yeah, it was like very hands on, and it was very yeah. bare bones, which I love. There's no faffing about, right? Either with special effects, obviously not really needed in, in the story, mm-hmm. but still, I mean, it was very clean. It, yeah, it felt, right. it felt very real. You get the sense in indie movies that they're actually much more parsimonious and much more like tight than yeah. than, uh, than Hollywood movies because um, you know every scene is going to cost cost uh, more money that they don't have yeah exactly <laughs> and i got the same sense with this i don't i don't know what the budget was for this but it was like it was like okay look if we don't need to film another scene we're not gonna do it because right that's not uh that's not in the books so and yeah. that's a good that's a good thing most most hollywood movies are way too bloated because they just have money to blow right yeah no exactly exactly Jurassic World, right? <laughs> That's the reason it's so much worse than Jurassic Park. Dude, even though it had a much Jurassic bigger budget. World, it wasn't even that they had extra scenes. The whole movie was just... That, <laughs> the whole that, idea. Yeah, the whole idea is just is this symbolic of, you know, of late capitalist excess. <laughs> Dude, terrible. But yeah, so it's funny. You can usually tell a lower budget film because they have fewer deleted scenes. They didn't have time to just <laughs> yeah. a bunch of stuff out, right? Yeah. So there's, I believe there's one deleted scene. I should send it to you because it's on YouTube. There's one deleted scene. And I can guess why they deleted it. Like it's, it's basically just, it's a quick scene, maybe 30 seconds. And it's just Fletcher getting home from a day of, of work at his apartment. <laughs> and he like pours a glass of wine and sits down and listens to some jazz. Hmm. It's funny. I actually love the scene It's for the scene's sake. It's like, shit, I want that apartment. That looks really cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I'm going to be able to like put on a record jazz when I get home on a big leather couch. And oh yeah. Okay, cool. But I guess I, I can see why they, I think it maybe like humanized Fletcher more than they wanted to, at least at that point in the film. And stuff, yeah. You see like a picture of his family and stuff on the, on the side. And I think, I think it's better the way the movie had it, where the only moment where Fletcher seems human is, is at that pub where he's doing yeah, the show. Bar, yeah. And I think it's better to have one, one shining moment of that rather than yeah. having, having it diluted with multiple scenes. But yeah, that does sound yeah. like a cool scene, though. But yeah, yeah I, I kind of want the apartment. It looks like Greenwich Village. Looks like yeah. you know it's probably upstairs from the jazz club. Really. It's... Yeah. When did jazz start being a thing in music schools? That's an interesting point. So Juilliard got their program in like 2000, I think. That's when jazz at Juilliard first started. And Berkeley College of Music is pretty old, and they've been teaching jazz, and they're they're arguably the best jazz program in the country. Berkeley yeah. College in Boston. Yeah, but Berkeley is weird in so many different ways. Oh, the, they're, it's, they're, it's a funky place. If you want to be 
a sort of quirky modern musician, Berkeley is the place to go, right? It's like the opposite sure. of IU in some ways. Like it's, IU, it's, yeah. IU is like super, you know, it's like 1960s European school. <laughs> yeah, no, like we had to wear tuxes for everything, basically. Yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> yeah. Even the teachers were like really old world in the way, like, like an old you school. Smell like smoke in the halls, even though like smoking was banned on campus. Yeah. You, you can smell it right when you walk in, into the into the music school because it's like twenty, it's like twenty fourteen, but people are still smoking, like it's nineteen seventy. Yeah, <laughs> still smoking because it's good for you. you know, yeah. But yeah, no. So uh, yeah, I think ja- like a Juilliard jazz started in the two thousands, and some other schools have been doing it before that. I think New, New England Conservatory too did it before then. Manhattan School of Music had been doing it for quite a bit. I mean, obviously, this it's just a movie, so it doesn't matter. But from my own curiosity, I was wondering when jazz started being a thing in conservatories and what was interesting about it is that it's it's a jazz movie but i mean these this was a cl- very classical attitude that they were yeah i was curious because you're more in the jazz world than i am do people act like that in in jazz still i uh, you think they uh, would? i would say so like even the jazz like band camps i went to as a, as a kid yeah it was just okay. swapped jazz just swapped the sheet music really and it's, okay all cut from the same yeah. cloth. Okay, interesting. That's one of the things the movie does point out, which I do kind of love, is jazz, for various reasons that are understandable, does have a reputation maybe of being chill and loosey-goosey, even like from, from a technique perspective, right? But it's easy to forget like how precise jazz can be. Like jazz theory, jazz musicianship, your instrumental technique and stuff. It can be a lot more than it's often given credit for, I'll say. Mm. I mean the the music for sure. I just didn't realize that the culture was also cut cutthroat in the same way. Cause yeah, yeah, yeah it's pretty. It, yeah, there's definitely yeah competitive stuff, and sometimes you see it on stage too, right? Like you know, yeah. you're taking solos and stuff, and it's huh. so it's kind of out there for the audience to see sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing I was going to say is is that I think I would be remiss to to say that I think this kind of teaching culture is being weeded out. Yeah, slowly uh, but surely, and I think yeah. that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of style, and I think there's a reason. Yeah, you know, on the whole, it's not as effective. There's probably cases where it is, but as an aggregate, it's not not as effective as. I still think. I mean, there's something to be gained from this attitude. I mean, I I will go counter to the to the prevailing modern sentiment, which is (laughs) everyone's a winner, Streeter. (laughs) Yeah, that's kind of everyone's a winner, and also this thing of trying to make everything interesting to the student as opposed to. Mm just treating the subject as as rigorously as it should be treated mm-hmm. right there's there's a lot of dumbing down going going on nowadays a need to make things relevant whether it's socially relevant or relevant to their lives in the highest uh, you know offices of, of theoretical physics there's no one trying to make black holes socially relevant right there's yeah, no one saying right, right, like right. oh black hole you should study black holes because um it's going to make you better so, yeah, no, yeah right look, black holes exist you can study them if you want to study them come to me if not fuck off like there are other other things you can do (laughs) and and i I like i like that kind of attitude of the old school method like okay if you want to study this thing this is how we do it yeah if not fine no no harm no foul just go go do something else but we don't need to like do this dance here and also i think the strictness of there's there's this way in which you can you can approximate the the kind of the fletcherian attitude i guess i'll (laughs) I'll say by by being extremely uncompromising and strict in in your musical 
discretions, right? Mm. While not being abusive, like you can you can be really strict. I personally am, am not just because that's not my not my personality type. Like, I think, yeah. as you know from from being my friend, if I started trying to be really intense. I think everyone would find that kind of funny. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Not least, cause, not least, because I'm like you know five seven and some change, and like 120 pounds. So, you know, I, I don't think I, I'm I'm not I couldn't even lift a symbol, let alone throw it at someone. So, <laughs> so yeah. um, I think that's it. If I, I I can just say it, like it's, you know, a great teacher would be you know strict, but also not totally the Fletcher level of abusive. And frankly, Fletcher's blow that he does. He's not that good. Yeah. He's not at that level of, of teacher quality. You know, yeah. he, ha- he has to teach this way because he, he can't teach the other way because he doesn't know how or yeah. can't. My, my own teacher who was, I was playing something for him, just some etude. You know, it was some, I played some articulation wrong. It was three slurred, one tongued, and I think I maybe did it two slurred and two tongued or something like that. Just for one, one beat, I, I did it and he, he pointed it out. While not looking at the music, by the way, like he had all the, he had all these ATs memorized, and he said, you know, in bar thirty-seven, you did the wrong articulation, and I was a freshman, so I yeah. didn't know anything about anything, and I kind of just said, oh, it doesn't really matter though, <laughs> and and he said to me, if you're not going to care, who will? Hmm. And that has stuck with me, and I think that's that's again that part of the thing that we can take from this old school way of teaching is is that attitude, like. Like yeah, none of it matters. Ultimately, this is just music. It's not you're not trying to rid the oceans of trash, or yeah. you know land something on Mars or do do surgery, right? But if you're not going to care about it, you can't possibly expect anyone else to. So yeah, you know oh, treat treat this well with treat this with like the utmost degree of seriousness that you can, right? In- intensity. Yeah. No. No. I think I think that's well. I think that's well put. And. Again, one of the things, you know, to kind of like wrap this up, I guess, one of the things I just liked about this movie is we've talked about this before on, on the show, but how there's so many movies that just, that just get music wrong, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And yeah, there's a lot of that. And this one doesn't, I don't think at least, like this one gets, I mean, you know, there's interesting questions it asks that there's no easy answer to, which is why we've been talking for a while about it and trying to talk yeah. it out. So not only does it do that, but just all the little details of when he actually talks about a G7 with a flat 13 and the reason they're changing it. It's like, yeah, okay, yeah, that's a legit thing. <laughs> yeah, it checks out, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's not like, you know, you see this often with music. It's similar to Technobabble. Like, you see it in, yeah. in like, Doctor Who and Star Trek. They just, like, say things like, reverse the polarity of the electron flow yeah, or whatever. Yeah. And it's like, that doesn't mean anything. There's a lot of that going on with music in movies, right? Yeah. But, <laughs> Not not here though. So that's I appreciate. Not that. here. Yeah, er, er, everything pretty much checks out. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, even to it, how he conducts in time, how he cues, like it's all there. It's all there. And yeah, uh, yeah. So for that reason, I I liked it. And yeah, I mean overall, no. I mean, it was it was a different movie. It was an original movie, and no, it was just a f- such a fun movie to watch. It just it's just such a a trip, I guess. And, yeah. And, you know, I mean, you know, it sounds like you enjoyed it, too. So I'm glad yeah. I could, I could, yeah, I could no, share I, it, you know. I, I really like, I mean, compared to most modern movies, it's stellar. I mean, yeah. I don't know what it is with Hollywood these days. It seems like everything is a spinoff or a sequel and everything is mediocre. Like I said, yeah. it felt like an indie movie and I appreciate it for that. Um, it didn't feel like a Marvel Cinematic Universe. <laughs> no, not quite. <laughs>